Good afternoon and welcome to the Callens of March, March 31st, 2021, and our episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am happy to be back in the chair working with my most favorite co-host of this year, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Mr. Tom. I'm uh, thrilled to say I did not throw away my shot. So I'm looking forward to uh, getting out of this pandemic. All right. Well, let's jump in to discuss some of the news stories from this week. I know I took a little bit of time off last week to take care of Security Field Day, but luckily the new the world didn't stop. So we've got a few things that came up this week. Uh, of course, it's Cisco Live Week, and we'll be coming uh, to some of that news a little bit later. But we wanted to kind of hit some of the, the stories that were coming up. And the first one uh, comes from friend of Tech Field Day, Kasten, which is now part of Veeam. Uh, they released a new open source benchmark project that is aimed specifically at providing performance numbers for Kubernetes. Uh, in the interview, Kasten said that because so many developers are shifting to using Kubernetes and there are a lot of variable needs in the amount of IOPS that a given container can need at a very specific time that they felt like it was time to release this tool. Now, Stephen, can you kind of give us maybe a little bit of uh, analysis on this? Why would Kasten release a free tool to benchmark something that they can then sell you a product for? Hmm, I can't imagine why a company would love to know the configuration and performance capabilities of their customers and potential customers' devices. Now, honestly, um, I love this, and I want to give mega, mega kudos to my friends over at Kasten. It is uh, a great idea. Um, one of the things that I've always said was lacking in the container space was a good understanding of modern storage and data protection practices. This was a huge problem for Docker um, and remains a bit of an issue. Uh, I can't tell you how often I see uh, developers uh, putting out uh, containerized applications which use you know, uh, overlay file systems for performance sensitive uh, applications instead of using external file systems and external data like they should. Or how many times I've heard people saying, you know, oh, I'm trying to figure out a way to make my, um, you know, uh, my, my Kubernetes or my container, every time I, uh, you know, move it or restart it or anything, it loses all its data. What should I do? It's like, oh man, facepalm right there, buddy. You know, you, you just maybe need to learn a little bit about storage and application architecture. Um, and, and it's the same with performance. So frankly, um, this application, uh, Kubster, I'm going to call it Kubster. I'm not sure if that's what they call it, but um, um, I kind of like that better than Kubster. Um, but anyway, I'm going to call it Kubster. Um, it uh, absolutely, it will uh, assess your storage in a way that is pretty smart and shows some knowledge of, uh, you know, enterprise storage practices. And uh, I love it. So, Casten, uh, um, you guys, uh, you guys hit me right there. As a storage nerd, uh, thank you for doing this. And everybody else, maybe go check out, uh, get yourself a little Coopster on the side. Um, you know, what can you do? So in other news, Tom, um, we recently heard about a, oh, it's nothing, data breach over at our friends uh, Ubiquity. Um, now, many of you know that Ubiquity is ubiquitous in um, low-end uh, home, Soho, small office, and actually uh, small telco and larger office environments. 
Um, in uh, December 2020, uh, the breach was uh, talked about, but it's been uh, cast in a new light uh, by an insider that spoke to a reporter. Apparently, um, instead of Ubiquity just being collateral damage from a cloud hosting provider attack, uh, which is kind of what they said, it looks like Ubiquity might have been the target all along. Uh, hackers apparently gained access to the company's AWS credentials. They had full read-write access to all the data for a period of time. Uh, the breach was discovered when new servers were spun up by the attackers, and they demanded 50 Bitcoin uh, to keep quiet, which was actually somewhat less money at the time, but uh, is now an insanely huge amount of money. Uh, Tom, uh, what do you think about the new revelations to Mr. Brian Krebs about this hack? First of all, let me start off by saying the six most horrifying words that you can ever hear are Brian Krebs is asking for comment. But um, first of all, uh, in the linked article, you definitely want to go read this. Um, this was a whistleblower that jumped out and said, hey, protect my identity and I'll tell you exactly how bad this is. Um, and it's bad. Like, like this isn't like th this is beyond stupidity. Like we, we talk about Hanlon's razor, right? Never attribute malice that which can be explained by stupidity. This is stupidity because they got caught with their pants down and then they covered it up. Now, in full disclosure, I use Ubiquity gear in my house. That being said, I may not be using it for much longer because this was, this was something that if you had just come clean, think of it like a steroid scandal in baseball. If you had just come clean and admitted we screwed up, we got caught and we tried to fix it because they didn't pay the ransom. They, they rooted out all of the back doors and found all of the stuff, we think. But then they tried to cover it up because they wanted to save face to keep the stock price from going down. That's the problem. And when someone has to go to the press to tell you that you did something wrong, that is them tacitly saying they no longer have faith and trust in your capability to make this happen. So I am worried. Um, and if you're a ubiquity shareholder, you should be worried too, because that's worth less than the amount of money that you paid for the gear soon. Um, I don't know how they come back from this. Um, now, this really only affects you if you have any of their cloud-focused infrastructure, like if you have a cloud login or you have a cloud key or something like that. And I know a lot of people who weren't using that uh, for reasons, a lot of them involving money. But... Uh, if this had been anybody else, if this had been Cisco or Juniper or Aruba or anyone, like like this would have been like the largest news story for weeks. This would have been <clears throat> the level of solar winds. But because it's a prosumer gear system, it wasn't. And I think that that maybe is why it didn't get the scrutiny that it needed up front. So to the to the friends that I have that work at Ubiquity, <clears throat> you've got a long road ahead of you to make it right with the the um, the community, because if you don't, well, you'll be making it right with someone else because you'll be looking for a new job. And I hate that, but this is the fallout from lying about what happened. All right, Stephen, in slightly happier news, um, storage provider and uh, friend of our event, Hikyu, I hope I'm saying that right, Haiku, Haiku, that is correct, sorry. Um, it's, it's like it's a poem. Uh, they just announced that they have a finished their Series A funding round, which is $87.5 million. This is great. Um, the startup was spun out of Comtrade software back in 2018. 
and uh, has quietly gained market share against some high-flying startups in the data protection space, which is a pretty hot market right now. Now, Stephen, you have been following this company ever since they spun out. What does this mean, and how is it that it took them three years to get to their Series A? I'm hoping it's for good reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Haiku is a really interesting story in a couple of different ways. Um, first of all, I'll take that last question. How is it possible that a company is just now getting a Series A when they've theoretically been in business for a few years now? They've got customers, they've got product, they've got employees. Um, where did that money come from? Well, the money came from uh, Comtrade. So Comtrade Software is a major, major software developer in Europe. Uh, they do a lot of different uh, development projects, and they were working on a data protection project that became a company. And essentially, Comtrade um, launched this, uh, this little baby uh, in a boat that was fully stocked with provisions to help it uh, on its way. And so uh, that being said, uh, Haiku is now more of a separate company than, um, well, it's as separate as, as a company gets, basically. It's its, its own company, its own uh, future, and uh, its own funding round. And so basically the company decided that uh, they did enough with that uh, seed funding, and now they're ready to raise some real funding, some real money, and uh, go after the big guys. Uh, this is another great story for another reason, and that's that Haiku has always been an insanely practical company. This is a company that makes products that companies with big budgets need and want to buy and have budget for and want to pay for. And, and so, I mean, you know, you hear about all these startups and all these, you know, unicorns and funding rounds and everything. Well, you know, you got to ask yourself sometimes, like, where's the market for that? Who's actually going to buy this? Um, who wants this thing? Um, Haiku targeted specific use cases that were, um, you know, major if weird little niche markets um, like Nutanix users, for example, and, and said, you know, we're going to develop a solution that fixes a problem for companies that have already invested a bunch of money in a thing and are willing to invest more in a thing. Um, I'm loving it. Uh, they deserved it. They did a good job. They built a good product. They've been selling. Uh, now they got uh, $87 million to continue to grow and uh, address new opportunities. And uh, essentially, this means that they have uh, quietly bootstrapped a little unicorn that nobody has heard of often off to the side while some of their major competitors are out there, you know, getting all the press um, with massive, massive multiple funding rounds and everything, as we might talk about in a few minutes on this very show. So kudos to our friends over at Haiku. Uh, way to go. And um, it's just a good story. Speaking of good stories, Tom, uh, every year in June, um, there's a little nothing kind of event in the consumer space that really has nothing to do with anything. But, you know, just because, you know, we're nerds, we like to sometimes talk about it. Um, and it's going to happen this year again. Apple just announced uh, the annual Worldwide Developer Conference is coming uh, June 7th through 11th. Um, it's still going to be online, a virtual conference, not in person again, um, which is good because WWDC was a massive conference, and that really wouldn't have been safe in the time of COVID. Um, this marks to uh, Apple's return to the early June timeframe of WWDC, which uh, we've all grown accustomed to. And uh, you'll remember that WWDC is where a lot of cool products have been launched over the years. 
Um, wonks are already trying to read the tea leaves and figure out what's going to be announced. Um, will we see some AR glasses? Will we type up some new Macintoshes? Uh, will we see anything at all? What do you think, Tom? Well, first of all, I'm very happy that Apple came out with this announcement because it means I don't have to shave my eyebrows trying to guess whenever it's going to show up. Shout out to John Prosser. But um, this is a big news step for them because they're getting ahead of the news cycle because we knew that WWDC was going to be sometime in the summer. And we were almost positive it was going to be virtual as opposed to last year when maybe we held out hope that Apple was going to try to do something. But because it's free and available to everyone online, that means that they can kind of show off some new interesting technologies um, and reportedly, they're going to definitely do that because we've got, you know, whatever the next national park version of Mac OS is going to be, we've got iOS 15. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who are even saying that we might even wait to see the iPad Pros, the new ones released until iOS 15 is kind of on the drawing board because it could very well need features that are in there. And of course, you know, you have the typical, well, this is what I want my iPad to look like, a mini laptop touchscreen computer. So I really want iOS 15 to do this, which is kind of like you've got the wish list people who are trying to push Apple to do things they really aren't going to do. And then you've got the people who are dissecting every pixel of the image to find out if Apple's hidden secret messages in there. Um, I did decipher one yesterday. And um, Stephen, I can, in fact, confirm that Paul is dead. Or maybe not. But um, the fact is that this is Apple saying, we're going to get back to what we do best, which is talk about software. We're going to do it in an online forum where everybody can be safe and can learn things. And we're going to put it on the calendar so you can mark off what you need to mark off. And in a world of virtual events where everybody's trying to stack all their stuff on top of each other, I applaud Apple for getting the word out early. But if you want to go ahead and release an iPad Pro in April, I wouldn't mind that either. All right, Stephen, um, speaking of Apple, and mobile devices and the chips that run in them. You probably have heard of ARM, as we all have who listen to the show, because ARM is a frequent topic here. Well, guess what? At ARM Vision Day this week, they have announced V9 architecture. That's right. We're up to version 9. Um, they are, of course, adopting a lot of the latest trends, including heterogeneous compute cores. Um, there's also going to be support for machine learning, digital signal processing, security enhancements, and a kitchen sink. However, that's a list of buzzwords. What does that really mean, Stephen? Because you're really close to the ARM community. So Tom, one of the things that I find interesting about this is that this announcement is basically the smallest piece of impactful news of the week. Essentially, this announcement means nothing. It is not really going to affect anything for the short-term future. Uh, let me back up and talk about what ARM really announced here. So ARM has a series of uh, basically uh, architecture generations for their CPUs. Uh, the current generation is what's known as ARM V8. And ARM V8 was very important because it introduced a couple of big uh, enhancements. Number one, 64-bit instructions for the CPU. And number two, it um, brought greater um, uh, emphasis on heterogeneous computing. Uh, essentially, you may have heard of this whole big little architecture where basically ARM has uh, some fast cores and some power efficient cores, and they put them together in the same CPU so that things like smartphones can have uh, good battery life, but also good performance. And of course, Apple implemented something like that in the M1 as well. So it's got four fast cores and four efficient cores. And um, that's the sort of things that we saw with the ARM V8 generation. Uh, 
Now that's been the current generation of ARM CPUs for a decade. Now ARM V9 is the next generation. So ARM is calling this basically the ARM V9 decade. That's like the future that they're predicting here. So think about it this way. Um, imagine you got a Lego set and all the bricks were basically the same size. That's basically how ARM was in kind of the V7 generation, right? They made CPU cores and the CPU cores were basically CPU cores and you could have more than one of them, but they were all basically the same. In this generation, we're gonna see more bricks of more sizes and that's pretty exciting. So you're gonna see low-end bricks uh, for IoT devices and then you're also gonna see really high-end ones for servers, you know, 64-bit server cores and everything in the middle. And essentially OEMs are gonna be able to, uh, and ARM licensees are gonna be able to mix and match these things and build a whole range of chips. So we're gonna see new kinds of processor cores. So ARM is really em em embracing this heterogeneous computing model. We're gonna see machine learning accelerators. We're gonna see uh, data management and, uh, and interconnect uh, modules. Uh, they're uh, embracing this whole idea of confidential computing. Um, so we're going to have all sorts of security uh, aspects to this thing as well. And of course, we're going to see sort of um, just better cores uh, for the mainstream processors. So this announcement really is going to have an impact more next year and the year after that than it's going to have today. But basically, ARM V9 cores are going to be everywhere uh, five years from now, from you know outlets and light switches to portable devices, uh, tablets and uh, cars to servers. And that's really what ARM is announcing here. And, and, and that's why you know, we should be excited but not too excited. And there's one more thing, if I can coin a phrase, that ARM announced, and that is that they are trying to build systems that are essentially ready to boot and ready to go. Because one of the challenges with ARM processors, and you might not notice this if you're using like a Raspberry Pi, but uh, if you're using basically anything else, is that it's really hard to like get an operating system to like easily install and boot on the thing. Um, it, it's been a problem and it's really held these things back. So moving forward, ARM is trying to make it so that more and more systems are system ready. In other words, that they're easy to develop an operating system, a bootable environment and get the thing up and running. And this is a, a more nuanced uh, aspect of the announcement, but it's probably even a more important one because what it means is that ARM is gonna be a better competitor for x86 in the let's take an off-the-shelf operating system, let's mix and match components, and let's have a running system market, which is to say the market. So anyway, I'm pretty excited about what they're doing here. Uh, but that being said, it's not really news today. So uh, let's uh, turn the page here, Tom, and get into some of our deeper news stories uh, in, in depth here, uh, maybe have a little discussion. Um, this week is uh, Cisco Live Global. Uh, we've been attending, uh, we actually did a live blog of the keynote yesterday on uh, gestaltit.com. Uh, we did a live discussion on Clubhouse. Uh, we've been paying attention quite a lot to what Cisco announces because frankly, Cisco uh, is one of the most important companies in enterprise tech. And uh, this is their big opportunity to shine and to tell their story. And yesterday's keynote really said that. 
So uh, Cisco is uh, moving into a new uh, direction uh, with their new offerings, uh, basically networking as a service. Uh, th this offering, Cisco Plus, is seen by many in the industry, including yours truly, as a shift toward op an OPEX model for networking equipment um, for customers to consume uh, on demand instead of the old model where you buy a thing and, and then use it. You know, in this case, you're going to pay for the amount of bandwidth or services you need. Um, you get delivery of the equipment within two weeks. Uh, Cisco um, basically supports it. You know, they, they, they give you access to the features you need, and basically you pay only as you go. Uh, they've announced two initial offerings based around uh, hybrid cloud and uh, SD-WAN, also known as SASE. I don't know. Uh, Tom, what does this mean uh, as Cisco moves to this new model of sort of uh, everything OpEx, everything as a service, everything pay as you go? Um, so part of it means that your licensing costs are going to go up, but it's going to be a whole lot easier to figure out how you license your gear. And I know that that's basically been one of the, the, um, oh, those Japanese Taika drums that everybody beats on for the last year about how Cisco's licensing is so arcane and crazy and stupid. <clears throat> this was the handwriting on the wall. Um, if we make you, if we make you license everything, then we can just say, well, we'll just send you whatever you want. And as long as you keep paying the licenses, it'll still work. I mean, this is the entire thing that HPE has been doing with GreenLake. This is the cloud model. I don't want to have to go through every line item and figure out how many SFPs do I need and do, what does this interact with these other things? Just tell us what you want to do and we will send it to you. And that is a gamble. I think it's going to be a safe gamble for Cisco. It's easy to make gambles when you're sitting on top of the, the pyramid, but I'm curious to see how the market responds because this is tacitly saying that the era of hardware sales is over and we're going to more of a rental leasing model, which I mean, people have been trying to say for years, right? We'll let you lease the hardware, we'll let you do this. But that means your costs are going to go up because if you're providing networking as a service, when the hardware gets old, you got to go fix it. You got to go pull it out and put new stuff in. Now, this is also a huge problem in my mind for resellers, because if you're not one of the big resellers, if you're not the WWTs, the Presidios of the world who have a, a very tight relationship with Cisco and are effectively ser serving as a um, services arm of Cisco, it's not going to look pretty for you in the long run, because why would I go with you to put your the gear that you sold me in when I can sign up through Cisco and keep getting new gear every three or four years? And they'll just send people out to put it in for me. Um, I'm not saying that you're going to completely outsource your IT department, but I'm going to say your skill set's going to change. Not unlike what we've seen with developers and cloud architects being more, I don't know, forefront in, in most modern IT orgs. Uh, now, granted, you're still going to have to have a lot of tribal knowledge to figure out how everything works. And Cisco has admitted that the future is hybrid. Um, I think they're kind of doing that because they realize that if they say that the future is not hybrid, then uh, it's got to be public cloud and that cuts them out of a lot of, of stuff. But I don't know. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. I want this to work. I want this to succeed. And I want this to kind of change the way we have these conversations. That being said, there's going to be a lot of turmoil over the next two years as they roll this out. And I think starting with hybrid cloud was probably the best way to do it because this is effectively the cloud governance model. And if you're wondering why SASE and SD-WAN are the second thing, well, how are you going to on-ramp your existing data center to the cloud? Well, there you go. Um, I don't think, though, that this will ever really flow down completely into wireless, the, the edge. 
um, because there's too much complexity there. And I think that Cisco doesn't have the expertise right now to make that happen. So I'm, I'm holding my breath to see where this goes. Um, you know, Stephen, obviously, you know, you have a lot of experience with the cloud, you know, how do you think that this is going to affect people who are trying to consume cloud resources? You know, for me, the interesting announcement at Cisco Live was that they were talking quite a lot about unifying the various components and the various elements and companies that they've purchased over the years and creating a, uh, you know, uniform uh, software as a service dashboard to bring all these features together. And frankly, I think that that's absolutely the right direction from, for Cisco on a software perspective, but it also has relevance to this story. So uh, think of it this way. Um, if you're gonna be consuming as you go, it really doesn't make sense to have a bunch of point products. It really doesn't make sense to have a bunch of local only products or disconnected products. In order to really make something work as a service, it needs to be integrated. It needs to be unified. It needs to have APIs uh, driving it. It needs to have that DevOps mentality. And uh, the only way to do that really is to combine uh, the advancements in terms of um, you know software as a service and portals and API driven and you know Cisco's ACI and telemetry and all that kind of stuff combine that with a pay as you go service or purchase model and so from my perspective this makes a lot of sense um, it's a smart move for Cisco it's also not a, um, a rocket science uh, move for Cisco because frankly this is where every company is going. We recently had NetApp present their Keystone offering. We've had HPE present GreenLake. Um, everybody's going into an as-a-service model, uh, and Cisco's doing it too, and that's good. Um, kind of seems like table stakes for the 20-whatever century we're in now, <laughs> whatever decade we're in now. Um, you know, this is kind of how uh, enterprises or some enterprises are going to be consuming resources, and it's nice to see Cisco on board. Um, I, I feel like uh, this is good overall, but I don't see that it's also like a huge, huge story. And as you mentioned, Tom, there are probably areas where pay-as-you-go OPEX model doesn't make sense. And I'm wondering if we're going to discover those as basically enterprises try to create everything as a service. We may discover that there are corners of the industry, like perhaps Wi-Fi access points. I don't know that there are corners of the industry that don't make sense to be paid on an OPEX model. Um, on the other hand, maybe those do, you know, maybe those make a lot of sense. I don't know, but uh, you know, I think that that's really going to be the interesting thing to watch here. Not, Oh, you know, this is as a service because that's kind of a no-brainer. But um, but you know, what makes sense as a service and what doesn't make sense on a as a service on a company by company? Yeah, I think you're right. And one of the things that we'll realize soon is that the debate amongst IT professionals to figure out where those areas work and where they don't is going to be even more critical because we're the ones that have the existing knowledge to know what works best with that. And if you're curious about that, you definitely don't want to miss our upcoming Tech Kill Day exclusive event that's happening in two weeks where we will have two full days of a lot of the announcements that you've seen here from Cisco, whether it's their mass scale infrastructure or app dynamics and thousand eyes, um, where we will be breaking a lot of this down and kind of having some experts in the room asking these kinds of questions. What does this mean? Where do I go with this? How do I make this work with what I, I need to accomplish in my daily goals? So if you wanna learn a little bit more about that, you know, you head over to techguilday.com and click on the link for Cisco Live or Tech Guilday exclusive at Cisco Live Global. And you can see everybody who's gonna be presenting, 
um, every one of the Cisco uh, product lines that will be featured. And uh, you can see a list of the delegates who will be there. And I'll be there as well, um, because I can't wait to get a little bit more information about this. So um, stay tuned for more great content headed your way. Um, Stephen, let's talk a little bit about storage, your favorite topic. And I specifically want to talk about Cohesity. Um, because they announced that uh, they're more valuable now than they were this time last year. Now, you probably know that Cohesity is backed by the SoftBank Vision Fund. That'll be important in just a second. Um, they're now worth over $3.7 billion. They've gone up over a billion dollars from last year when they were valued at $2.5 billion during their last funding round. Now, in the latest announcement, CEO Mohit Aaron said that an IPO was, quote, not far off, and that's all he said. But one of the board members has been quoted in the story that we'll link in the show notes saying that they're not really looking to raise any more financing anytime soon because they have enough cash for the company to have a runway for the next two years. Hmm, that sounds like a suspiciously specific length of time. Um, they are valuable and there's a lot of value that they want to unlock. And obviously they've been taking a lot of funding and they would like to do something with it. And Mohit was a founder at Cohesity I'm not sorry, he is a founder at Cohesity, obviously, but he was also a founder at Nutanix, and he's seen how well that's worked out for Nutanix in the long run. So I don't think the mention of the IPO was any kind of an accident. Um, Stephen, this would be huge. This, this would be one of the bigger IPOs that we've seen in quite a while. Um, knowing what we know about Cohesity, you know, what do you think about this? Do you think the markets are going to embrace this idea of them coming out to, to get uh, you know, the biggest funding round through IPO, or is this going to be something that the markets are going to look at and go, yeah, we're, we're really not wanting to invest in a tech company? Well, I'm not a financial analyst <laughs> by any means, but um, I do need to point out a, th a few things here. Um, you know, there have been a, there are a few of these uh, sort of enterprise unicorns out there that are very successful uh, companies on their own. They're producing software. Again, you know, back to sort of the haiku uh, discussion. Um, you know, we've got these companies that are, um, you know, producing valuable products in a market that has an appetite for spending, that has budget to spend. Um, it's not a bad shtick if you can get it to produce enterprise software that companies want. And data protection, well, data protection doesn't sound sexy, but it's one of those areas where basically every company needs it. And if you can find a good spin on it, if you can find a way to pitch the technology in a positive way, um, it can work. And uh, essentially, that's what we've got here with Cohesity. You know, this is a company that had, took a look at the uh, emerging uh, hyper-converged con uh, uh, infrastructure market and said, you know, that's not just for servers, that could also be for other infrastructure elements. Uh, you know, secondary data, they took a look at the growing, you know, vast volumes of data. Anybody who's been in a sales presentation from literally any company in the last 15 years has seen that slide of, you know, unstructured data is growing, you know. That's the market that Cohesity is in. Uh, they're going into a market that is growing, that has appetite, and those appetites are insatiable to add more and more and more data. All this is uh, motherhood and apple pie. Uh, this is a company that has produced a compelling product that works and companies are willing to pay for, and that's just great. It's also a company that's done a tremendous job marketing itself. Uh, they are uh, everywhere at you know trade shows and industry events. 
They have great people that have worked for them over the years. Uh, you know, kind of some of them have come and gone, but you know, they've they've hired great people. They've had those great people tell great stories and compelling stories. And you know, again, this is a good example of execution on a marketing and sales uh, perspective. And they apparently, uh, you know, have built a pretty good company culture as well. So, I mean, all this stuff sounds great. So now I'm going to pretend that I'm a financial analyst and take a little bit of a deep look into the into this thing. So, if you read it into that uh, statement uh, that they've you know taken um, you know that, that that they're valued this high and that there's maybe an IPO looming, one of the things that he says is that uh, let me see if I can find the exact quote. Um, you know, again, the company has more than two years of cash on the balance sheet and that the company is um, nearing cash flow break even. This is a very specific statement. <laughs> in other words, the company is soon going to take in as much money as it spends to keep its, the lights on, uh, which is again, awesome. Congratulations, Cohesity. But what that means really is that the company until now has been spending more than it's taking in a lot more. And that's pretty nuts considering how much the company, uh, you know, how big the company has grown and how much revenue the company has. And then it also raises another question considering how much money the company has raised over the years. So this, I think, is a really interesting aspect of the story. So this is not a funding round that's being announced. It's a valuation round. The company has raised a gigabuck, I don't know, uh, they've raised a lot of money, $660 million in funding rounds that we know of in um, series A, B, C, D, and E rounds, all the way back to 2013. This is a lot of money. Uh, this company has uh, had a lot of really great investors involved. Uh, you know, big names like Sequoia and SoftBank have been involved here. Um, this, the latest round, which occurred uh, basically last year, uh, roughly at this time, um, had a bunch of different companies. They raised a quarter of a billion dollars there again. Um, this company has raised a metric boatload of money and they are just now thinking of maybe becoming cash flow positive. The only way to paint, to get themselves out of that corner, that funding corner that they've painted by raising $660 million is an IPO, or I guess an acquisition, but I think an IPO is more, is more likely. Essentially, they need to take in a, a metric boatload, a shipload of money, maybe a, a giant container ship of money and pay off all those people. <laughs> You know, and basically kind of, you know, reset the playing field so that that new cash flow positiveness can actually be a value to the company. And so, again, I'm not a financial analyst, but that's my amateur analyst look at this. Essentially, this is SoftBank saying, hey, this asset is valuable. This asset is either going to be acquired or go IPO, and it's going to raise, you know, multi-billions of dollars when it does, and everybody's going to be made whole. And the company's going to be cash flow positive at that point, and everybody's going to be happy. Uh, to me, that's the story here. And uh, let's again abstract this a little bit. There are a few of these unicorns in enterprise tech that are in similar situations that have raised a huge amount of money, that are looking at an IPO or an acquisition in order to pay off 
all that and make everything happen. Uh, for me, the trick is what was buried in this story. You really got to be cash flow positive in order to be a real deal company in my in my book. I, I'm not as impressed by a company that's burning stacks of money to make smaller stacks of money. I'm impressed by a company that burns big stacks of money and makes even bigger stacks of money and makes all that investment pay off. That's what I'd like to see. And I think, I think that that's what SoftBank and Cohesity are promising us with this announcement. Yeah, I wouldn't doubt it, Stephen. And I think you're right. This idea that as long as we just keep taking money from VC investors with that, like pulling slot machine handles figuratively, um, that we can just keep making stuff until someone buys us is, well, if you told me that that was your business plan in, biz, in business school, I'd flunk you on the spot because that's not how you run a business. And we need to get away from that mentality. So, you know, props to the Cohesity people for actually running a business and logically finding what we assume to be is a good exit for them. Of course, exit in this case being an IPO because they're not going anywhere because I really do think they're too big to buy. Um, but ultimately, I think what, what it'll come down to is that Cohesity will will be kind of the gold standard for, you know, take the money that you need, build a business, make more money with the money that you took, and then find a way to pay off the people who believed in you at the beginning, um, which is the best business school fairy tale bedtime story that you could hope to have. So, Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what we want. Um, you know, I think sometimes in business, it can seem like we're, people are a little cutthroat and competitive and everything. But you know what? Honestly, all any of us want is to see good people build a product that's useful and have a business and have a market and, and do the thing. And, you know, so I'm, I'm just going to say thanks. You know, let's hope that that's what's happening here. And let's hope that that's what does happen here. So speaking of companies that have built a big business and are raking in money, uh, hands over fist, um, let's talk about a company that doesn't just have a giant container ship full of money, but gets a giant container ship full of money uh, delivered every day. And that is our friends up in Seattle, Amazon. So Amazon is reportedly looking to make its own networking silicon. This news came as Amazon was implementing new technology based on the Annapurna Labs acquisition they made back in 2015. And they're a huge consumer of Broadcom Silicon today. We've talked with Broadcom at our Tech Field Day events, and we've learned just how big that market is and how many you know, really impressive chips Broadcom has been supplying. And these chips are critically important to powering Amazon's cloud, you know, AWS cloud service. If Amazon's able to create a solution using homegrown chips and design it to meet uh, specific needs instead of being forced to use whatever you know, Broadcom designs, even though, of course, Broadcom is designing chips for hyperscalers now, this could really create some difficulty in the chip market for companies like Broadcom. And I think Wall Street has noticed that. So uh, it seems like uh, Apple and Intel's recent spat uh, has spilled over uh, to uh, Amazon and, and Broadcom. Uh, what is Amazon going to do here? Well, Amazon's going to do whatever Amazon wants to do, and the rest of us are just going to have to deal with it. 
And the funny thing is, is that when you consider that Broadcom is, is one of the largest chip manufacturers in, in the space, they're in the same boat because Amazon has been wanting to do this for years. And, and this is not the first time that we've heard that Amazon is developing their own chipsets, that they're building off of the ARM architectures and things like that. And, and part of the reason why, and we had a great discussion about this on Clubhouse yesterday, post Cisco keynote, because uh, someone asked, you know, what, what's Cisco's plan for the cloud? I'm like, they don't have one because nobody's going to come to Cisco. Um, you'll, you'll go there if you need like kit, like I want to buy a switch, but Amazon doesn't need a switch. They need a processor that does a very specific subset of things. So, you know, think of it much like, you know, when you want to go buy a vehicle, it's like, well, I can go to the car lot and I can buy a Ford F-150 and it has all of these features that I need. But in order to get those features, I also have to get like a sunroof and the upholstery protection because I can't buy the car without that. But I could if I went to the factory and paid a lot more because they have to custom build my car. Well, Amazon is basically saying, I want to order all of the parts for a car, and I want to build a pickup truck with a rocket launcher mount on the back because I need that. And they can do it, and they can do it cheaply because they're Amazon. So look all the way back in the day to the way that Facebook came out with OCP. And, and everyone's like, oh, they're, they're revolutionizing the way that, that people are going to build switches. Well, you know, thanks to my friend Greg Farrow, who was pretty much sage-like in his, his uh, prognostications here. No, they're not. They're trying to drive down the price of the components that they want to use to build their switches. I don't necessarily know that Amazon's going to do that specifically. I think what they finally realized is, is that they need really specific chipsets for workloads. And the... Comparison to Apple and Intel is actually not that far off when you think about it. Um, Apple needed very specific performance requirements, and they've been writing Mac OS and iOS and iPad OS for years to take advantage of that. I would argue that the reason why Apple has been so successful at being a stable operating system for so many years is because they're really only writing for like three architectures. They don't have to worry about device drivers. Um, they realize that they could do everything they need with a mix of high performance and low performance cores. They don't need 87 cores in an, in an uh, you know, whatever lake Xeon that comes out. And I think that this is Amazon saying, listen, we don't need your craziness. We don't need MPLS baked into an ASIC somewhere because we're never going to use it. We need our own stuff. And Broadcom has been trying to cater to that hyperscaler market for a long time and using their development process in the hyperscaler market to float those features down into chips that they can sell on the mass market as Merchant Silicon. I mean, that's literally what Merchant Silicon is. It's we're going to build a, a bog standard Ford F-150 for sale to anybody who wants it, hoping that someone will say, hey, well, why don't we put this crazy feature in this, this thing up here that we're willing to pay for to basically you know, underwrite the R&D? Well, guess what happens when companies stop doing that? Now, Broadcom and other chip manufacturers are going to have to start charging a boatload of money to underwrite the research that goes in to baking those features into the chipsets. And that's not sustainable long term, because look at how many people still make their own silicon today. Cisco and like maybe two other companies, everybody else is buying off the shelf chips and building their software around it. Well, when the underwriting stops, those companies are going to have to find a way to make the money up, and that's going to be increased licensing costs, increased sales costs, and it's all going to get passed along to you, the consumer. Amazon isn't going to care because they're just going to go off and build whatever they want to build. And this was, you know, as you mentioned in the opening, Stephen, this was reflected in the fact that, that Broadcom stock price shot down as soon as the, the thing came out because Wall Street's not stupid. Um, 
Amazon going their own way can only benefit Amazon. Yeah, I think that the metaphor of the truck is absolutely right. I'll just call people's attention to another recent news story, which was the post office truck. Um, so you, you probably heard about this, where the post office ha in the United States has a special a special vehicle that's used to deliver the mail. And um, you know, about twenty five or thirty years ago, uh, the post office said, "Hey, you know, vehicle production industry, we need." a specialized vehicle, not just an off-the-shelf vehicle. We want a specialized vehicle for delivering the mail in the United States, and we will buy, um, you know, 200,000 of them or 300,000 of them or whatever. Um, and so they got a bunch of bids, and I think Northrop Grumman ended up winning it. You know, a defense contractor uh, ended up building this post office truck. These things are ubiquitous in the United States. Uh, those of you outside the U.S. may be more familiar with our yellow school buses, but frankly, those little white post office trucks are just as ubiquitous. I mean, it's like a London taxi. It's specifically designed to deliver the mail. That's kind of Amazon in this situation. So Amazon is saying, you know, hey, you know, chip makers, we, we need a chip that does all these things. And the chip makers have been happy to put together a little white postal van or a big yellow school bus for them in, in order to keep winning that business. But now Amazon has said, you know, basically, hey, um, honestly, uh, we got engines, we got chassis, you know, we got transmissions, you know, we got batteries, all this other stuff. Maybe we don't maybe we don't put this out to bid. Maybe we build our own uh, next generation postal vehicle here. And um, and that's really what's happening. And frankly, this is a big news in the industry, but it's also not catastrophic news. I just want to point out uh, so far, companies like Broadcom and Intel and AMD and Arm and you know all these companies are making money off the cloud. They may not be making money off the cloud as much in the future. Uh, because the cloud service providers may kind of go their own way and build their own stuff. But you're not Amazon and you're not Google and you're still going to buy stuff. And so there is a future here. I think that the, the story really for the majority of people listening is to keep an eye on what Amazon's decisions architecturally mean once they trickle into the enterprise data center, because inevitably they will. I mean, obviously, there's a Wall Street angle here that Broadcom's not going to sell as many chips to Amazon anymore. Okay, but personally, uh, you know, don't feel like this is catastrophic. Broadcom's not going out of business because of this. Uh, they're just going to basically change their focus and do things a little bit differently because they're not trying to cater to feed that, you know, King Kong in Seattle. Yeah, you're right. Broadcom won't be going out of business anytime soon. <clears throat> I'm not worried about that. I'm just worried about how they're going to be able to make up. Um, that lost business. Uh, and, and this is the thing that all switch manufacturers have had to deal with over the last couple of years, whether they're Cisco or Juniper or Arista. What happens when cloud providers stop buying from us and just buy directly from the source? So, you know, here's hoping in the long run that, uh, that, that things work out and that everybody gets what they want. All right, well, that will just about do it for this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in. We always appreciate your viewership and your participation uh, through the comments and through uh, the perspectives and sharing this with all of your friends. Remember that we are here every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern Time, bringing you the latest news of the week. Um, you can also find us in your favorite podcast application of choice. 
uh, by going into, uh, you know, whether it's Overcast or Apple Podcasts or even in iTunes and, uh, you know, download the episode, listen to it on your run or whatever commute you have down the stairs, or if you're back in the office, uh, your commute back to the office, um, please leave us a like and a rating and, uh, you know, give us a little bit of a review so that people know what they're getting into when uh, Stephen and I start snarking on the news. Um, but Stephen, uh, you know, it's, uh, we're, we're wrapping up March, we're getting into April. I know that you're a busy man. Um, what have you got going on that people should be checking out this week? Well, honestly, uh, we've been talking about it here on the rundown, but uh, the news is Intel's announcing Ice Lake soon. And in fact, next week, uh, Intel's going to be talking publicly for the first time about the Ice Lake Xeons. Uh, as I mentioned on a recent Checksum episode, which you should definitely check out at gestaltit.com or YouTube slash gestaltit video. I feel like AMD's Milan launch uh, opened the door to Intel in an exciting way in the server market. And I'm eager to see what Intel's response is, You know what their next generation Xeon chips look like. I uh, will be covering that. So next week, uh, we're gonna be covering the Intel keynote live. We're also gonna be doing a roundtable discussion right afterward uh, where we kind of react to the keynote. And then the next day on Wednesday, we're gonna be uh, getting some in-depth uh, Tech Field Day discussions with the uh, Intel engineers that are making that announcement. And we're going to be able to ask them questions and get clarification and dive into whatever it is that they're announcing. So please do go to techfieldday.com, check out the special event with Intel's uh, data center uh, update. And please do tune in next week for that uh, event. Uh, Tom, I think you've got something going on as well, right? I do. Um, so uh, we will be uh, talking to Glueware, which is a, a partner company for Cisco, uh, on Monday the 5th. So you're definitely going to want to tune in for that. Just head over to techfieldday.com and you can check out the times uh, for that. It's part of our Cisco Live, um, Tech Field Day exclusive at Cisco Live Global. Um, you know, we'll have a Tom Versations episode that'll be posting in the, in the coming weeks uh, or the next week or so. Um, there's a lot of things going on. And then, of course, you know, we're ramping up for more of our great Tech Field Day events and um, on-premise IT roundtable podcast recordings. Um, you can always find those by going to gestaltit.com slash podcast. Um, there's a lot of great content coming out of the folks here at Gestalt IT. You definitely want to make sure that you're subscribed, whether you're using RSS or some other kind of um, of uh, software to make sure that you're you're catching up when we release all of that. And uh, if you have any great ideas for podcast episodes, if you have any news items that you want to make sure that we see and cover, um, please make sure you tweet those at us. I'm at Networking Nerd. Stephen is at S. Foskett on Twitter. Um, you can also, um, if you're on Clubhouse, make sure you follow Gestalt IT because we will be uh, opening up a Clubhouse room to discuss the news before we jump in to start talking about it. Um, we had some great discussion this morning when we were going over the news. Uh, thanks to Enrico Signoretti and Drew Lentz for uh, giving us some story ideas and some perspectives. Um, but for now, for myself, um, for Stephen Foskett and for the rest of the team that works here at Gestalt IT, thank you very much for tuning in. And we look forward to being able to offer you some more great news, analysis, and perspectives next Wednesday. Stay tuned.